The following is a message of First Baptist Richardson. For more information, please visit fbcr.org. Well, good morning. My name is Ryan Musser, and I am a church member here, and it is my privilege to get to bring God's Word to you this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 11, book of Matthew chapter 11. Begin in verse 28, and while you're turning there, in your copy of God's Word, let me welcome each and every one of you who made it to church on Labor Day weekend. There ought to be a star you get for that. We appreciate you being here, not only those of you who are in the traditional service, but those of you who are watching from the other service in Worship East, two parts of our congregation worshiping together at the same time. We are so thankful you are here as well. And we recognize that there are many who may be out this week who will be watching this next week. We don't believe that the time, the distance prevents you from worshiping with us right where you are. And we are thankful that you are tuning in as well. If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 28, goes like this. Come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Many of you probably have heard this passage many, many times. It's a beautiful bit of scripture. It is important whenever we look at scripture that we put it in context. Anytime someone stands up here, make them put it in context because you need them to tell you what it means as it's written, not just how they want it to be. This passage has a context. Right before this, Jesus has been speaking to a number of different people, those who he sees as people who need to be repenting. He's done lots of signs and wonders that if Sodom and Gomorrah had seen, they would have repented, and these people have not, and he's been frustrated about that. And now Jesus is about to move and start dealing with a different group of people, the very religious people. The Pharisees. And they have a different set of problems that they're dealing with. And Jesus is addressing them here. And he's addressing them in the passage that we read together earlier from Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is a master teacher. And so to put things into context, Jesus often likes to take a premise of what he's saying and say it to the people so that they will hear it once and then go and act on it and do something with it. Master teacher always likes to apply what he's saying. And in this particular case, that's exactly what we have happening in chapter 12 is the application. So let's look together at the application before we get into what he's saying here in 11. In chapter 12, we have two stories that we read that both have to do with the Sabbath. Now, the word Shabbat in Hebrew means seventh. God worked for six days in creating the earth and rested on the seventh. I'm a little intimidated because somewhere either in this room or watching that video is my Hebrew professor from college. And so if I got that wrong, please come see me at the next steps room and we'll deal with that later on. But nonetheless... That's what Shabbat means. And so that that seventh day was a day of rest. And sure enough, both of these stories take place and they have to do with what's going on on the day of rest, that seventh day. So the first story involves Jesus' disciples who are walking down the road 
talking with him, listening to him, doing the work of his ministry, and they're a bit hungry. And these aren't the wealthiest people in the world, and they didn't pack a snack. And so as they're walking along, they're picking some grain off the heads of the grain as they go along. It's not theft. It's not a big problem. Please, you know, let's get past that for a moment. In their culture, we're okay. And so they're eating the grains, and the Pharisees say, look, it's the Sabbath. Your disciples do what is not lawful. Jesus responds. This, first of all, before we get into Jesus' response, isn't really breaking the law. This isn't a massive harvesting operation going on. I come from a very small town. When it's harvest time, you will see lots of people working and doing something. That's not what's going on here. They're just picking some food to eat. But Jesus responds anyway, and he does so by mentioning two different things. First of all, King David, who everyone loves to say is the perfect king and wasn't, nonetheless is their favored king. And King David, when he is running from King Saul, lies to the priest so that he can get the bread of the presence that's supposed to be reserved for worship. And he eats that because he's hungry and has to run and go on his way. And no one calls David out for this later on in his life, least of all God. And then Jesus points to the fact that even though this may be a violation of some extra laws the Pharisees have made, even if it were to be a problem with the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, their actual legal system law, there are all kinds of times when we have a conflict of laws. I am currently a lawyer, and in every contract I draft, there's a provision called the conflict of laws provision. It says if we have laws that conflict, we have to decide which one of them is going to supersede. I always put in there the laws of the great state of Texas because it makes my life easier. I know those better. If you're from New York and you're doing a contract with me and I say that, I don't care what your New York law says. My Texas law trumps. So, in this particular case, Jesus points out they have that system too. See, every single week on the Sabbath day, the priests go and they prepare the sacrifices and they do lots and lots of work, much like the ministers in your church that come up here and they do work on Sunday. Sunday is an exhausting day as a minister. You might want to say thank you to them. It is not a day of rest for them at all. And for the priests, it was the same way. See, the ministry of the temple needed to happen. That's where salvation would occur. That's where God was. It was a tabernacle and then it was the temple. And their job trumps the idea that they're not going to work on the Sabbath. In the conflict of laws, the superseding law in this case is ministry to the temple. And Jesus simply says, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath and one here is greater than the temple. In other words, my disciples are doing ministry to me and that's more important than the Sabbath law. So guess what? They get a pass. You can imagine how delighted the Pharisees were to hear this. So grateful for having that explained. Thank you, Jesus. We didn't consider it that way. No, wait, that's not what happens. They go off grumbling and angry, not very happy at all. Jesus, wise Jesus, understands they're upset. And so he gives them some space and goes away. No, that's not what happens either. 
Jesus follows them to their home church, their synagogue, their local congregation, and he goes there for round two of this little debate. I'm not sure, but I think Jesus came this day to pick a fight. Jesus goes into this congregation, and the Pharisees that have just been upset are there. And they bring him a man with a withered hand, with a hand that has been mutilated or deformed. Can you imagine coming into church that morning and being the person who has an affliction and becoming the lesson and the sermon itself? How'd you like it if I just walked down the stage and made you the point of the sermon? That would be awful, right? And this guy came, and just for a second, I want you to imagine his life, because he goes to church with a bunch of people who have decided that his problem in life is because of his sin, or the sin of his parents, one. That was their belief. So he comes to worship at synagogue, and he comes to study scripture at synagogue each week with people who think that his problems are all his fault. Not only that, but from the story, we learn that if these people that he goes to church with had the power to heal him on that day, they wouldn't. Are you feeling the grace and love yet? These are the people this man goes to church with. These are the people he has to deal with. Jesus, is it lawful to heal this guy, Joe, over here, whose hand's messed up? Jesus responds. In the law, it's not a violation to save a life. As a matter of fact, in the law, in the Torah, you can even violate the Sabbath to save the life of a sheep. Have any of you ever had to deal with sheep? I've had to deal with sheep. Let Let me tell you exactly how long it would take you to figure this out. If you had to deal with sheep five minutes, you would wholeheartedly agree with this statement. They are dumb. It, there's no getting around it. They are the dumbest. They're, they're dumb, okay? Sheep are not bright animals. They will injure themselves. If you're going to have a nation that involves a lot of shepherds, you're going to need some laws about how you take care of the dumb on the Sabbath. And that's exactly what they've done here. They've said, did your sheep fall in a hole? Yes. Okay, you can get the sheep out of the hole. Why? Because that's probably going to happen to you just about every Sabbath day. Jesus... Jesus tells them that that's in the law. They know this. But in this situation, Jesus wouldn't be saving a life. This man's not going to die. He's just not going to be made whole. His life is going to be afflicted. And there is no exception in the Torah for simply helping him to have a better life, to take care of this problem or the pain. It's not saving his life. So there is no exception, say the Pharisees. And that's why they've asked. Jesus has had enough. And he declares, if you can save a sheep on the Sabbath, then you can do good on the Sabbath. He tells the man to stretch out his hand and he heals him right there. And the Pharisees are so awestruck by the healing 
that they are grateful to the fact that this guy that I'm sure they've been praying for in their church for many years is healed. No, wait, that's not what happens either. They immediately start seeking ways to destroy Jesus. Because if a miracle happened in your church, the first thing you want to do is to destroy the person who helped perform the miracle. Nonetheless, that's exactly what happens. And remember I told you earlier that Jesus had been very frustrated with other places, with maybe less religious people, who had been very reluctant to repent, even though he had done signs and wonders. Here in the church where they had been coming every single week, in their local congregation with this guy, Jesus comes and he heals a man and does good on the Sabbath, having justified it, and their response is, we need to kill this guy. Without being facetious or in any way trying to be a jerk, I'm just asking, where do they think the power came from? Because if it came from God, you would wonder how God would violate his own laws. Later on, at some point, they try to say it came from someplace else, and Jesus says, well, that makes no sense. I'm doing good under some evil person's name. Doesn't that defeat the purpose? Nonetheless, that's exactly what happens. These people respond and they're very upset. Both of these passages with the grain and with the hand are about conflicting moments and conflicting ideas of the good. There are many good things. They are not all equal. There's obedience to the letter of the law and there's obedience to its spirit and the mission of the people. Jesus teed up this entire debate in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. He says in verse 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. There's no accident that Shabbat, the Sabbath, is the day of rest. Jesus is telling them about this. See, The religions of that day were beating people down with the things that they need to do. Look at the man with the withered hand. You can come in here, but today you can't get any help. And by the way, it has to be because of your sin that something's wrong in the first place. Look at the poor who would be hungry along the road on the Sabbath, maybe not having much to eat and see the grain, but no, the Pharisees say that would break some extra law that they've made. Can't do anything with that. By the way, even though you're poor, you should come up with some money for that Offering, We have a poor offering, but that's going to be pretty expensive for you because, once again, you're poor. But we need that to happen because pretty much everything you do is going to require a sacrifice. Also, you have a lot of sin. There were parables of the rabbis who would talk about this, just about how difficult it was just to live life because of all the rules. Same thing can happen today in churches. I have a suspicion from my experience in meeting a lot of agnostic people in Texas, that most agnostic people in Texas were actually created in the church. Not because people don't believe about God. They're willing to concede that God may be real, but what they have trouble with is the idea that this is what his people look like. That when they come in, they're judged for how they dress or how they look or what they don't know. That the problems in their life are all their fault. And don't get me wrong, sometimes the problems in our life are our causing. But if you are dealing with brokenness and heartache, the truth is there's a lot of stuff that you're probably not in control of. And just like then, it can be very difficult and religion can end up beating us down. Jesus says in verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A yoke 
is a device that you put on your oxen to keep them together. In those days, it was made of wood. And if, if you found a really good carpenter, the carpenter would carve out the oxen's yoke to fit the oxen so it wouldn't be ill-fitting. It would distribute the weight evenly. They wouldn't be overly burdened. It wouldn't chafe. Jesus just so happens to have been a carpenter. And there are all kinds of stories that back in the day, a carpenter might hang on their door, a little sign that would say something along the lines of, my yokes fit well. Jesus says, my yokes fit well. A yoke was also understood to be The law could be the yoke of the law. And there are traditions that rabbis would say, my yoke is this. My understanding of the law, my disciples take this on and they understand that this is the way I interpret the scripture. How is my yoke? There are books in the Apocrypha, Ben Sirach, who talk about the yoke of the law and seeking wisdom. And Jesus says, my yoke is easy. My burden, light. It will bring you rest. I read this passage and I sometimes think, Jesus, I know that what you say is true. It has to be true. I get that. But I swear I can turn the pages and find things that do not seem like a light burden or an easy yoke. I swear that you say you come not to bring peace but a sword. I I am positive you say take up your cross and follow me. I'm pretty confident I stood on this stage not too long ago and talked about how we are to run the race with endurance and needed perseverance because it wasn't easy. And I'm just asking you, Jesus, how is this true and that is true as well? There's a guy named Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson was a pastor of a church, and he was leading Bible studies for his adult leaders. And he was trying to explain passages, and some of these passages are, are difficult to read. Paul's passages, the Pauline passages, are particularly difficult, and because Paul writes in a very a roundabout way. And it can be difficult to understand, and so he was trying to go back to the Greek and translate these because he wanted his people to understand. They wanted to understand the scripture. And so Eugene Peterson started doing that and translating them. And then he had done so many books of the Bible and it was so helpful to his people that his congregation said, look, pastor, you really have to go and see if you can have this published. Like other people need to take this. It's not an exact translation, but it's to understand the idea. It's almost if you took a commentary and the word and put it together and just tried to put out an idea of what's being said here. So he did, and that's how we get the Message Bible. Eugene Peterson, his translation, the Message Bible, is just pastoral notes from trying to help his congregation understand. I don't know that he always nails it, but I'm going to tell you, I think he does in this passage. His translation of 28 through 30 is this. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. This is about rhythms of grace for you and me and for all those outside of our doors. He says... 
y'all walk with me and work with me. I want to point out, and it's easy to miss, most of the time when Jesus is saying these passages and he uses the word you, uh, that's the word y'all in proper English. I know it is because in my Greek and Hebrew classes, they made me translate it that way. If you were north of the Mason-Dixon line, you could say use guys. Western Pennsylvania, you could go Ewins. That was allowed. The point is, it's to us. Come to me, all you. Y'all who are weary and heavy laden. Y'all come and walk and work with me. Jesus confesses its work. But as we do it together, as we're in his presence, there's rest as well. Watch how I do it. Jesus says that, and I start to wonder, when did you rest, Jesus? Your life seemed pretty hectic, at least the part that I read. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty confident that the Gospel of Mark makes it a sprint from the cradle to the cross. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of rest. So I went and looked in my Bible this week to find some places where Jesus might have rested. And lo and behold, I found some places where he started creating space for himself and rest because as a human, he was going to need that. In Luke chapter 5, 1 through 11, in Matthew 13, 1, and in Mark 4, 1, Jesus uses the same trick all three times. Jesus finds this fisherman named Simon who has a boat, and the crowds are pressing in on him, and he says, Simon, put me in the boat and let me get off to shore because the crowds are pressing in on me, and Jesus preaches from the boat. On the last occasion, Jesus is really tired because he's had a lot of preaching and debating and dealing with the people. And he says, instead of going back that way, let's go across to the other side. I'm going to take a nap. And Jesus lays down on a cushion and goes to sleep. And he would have probably gotten a pretty good nap except a storm came up. But that's a different story. In Luke chapter 5, 12 through 16, Jesus heals a leper. And other people hear about it. And others want to be healed too. But Jesus withdraws and leaves work to be done. He withdraws to a deserted place to pray. In Luke chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus has just finished having the conversations that we're talking about today about the withered hand and the grain. And he goes up on a mountain when he's finished to be alone and pray. Taking some Sabbath for himself. In Matthew 14, 13 through 21, Jesus goes out to a deserted place to be alone. But he didn't get to because about 5,000 men and women and children followed him out into the wilderness when he was trying to get away from everyone else. And they didn't pack a lunch. And Jesus sees that they're hungry and they need it. And so rather than rest, he feeds the 5,000. The only miracle other than the resurrection that occur in all four Gospels. When Jesus was trying to just get some time off. In Matthew 14, 22, after feeding the 5,000, Jesus, pretty tired at this point, sends off the 5,000 people and even sends the disciples away to the other side in a boat and goes off to be by himself with his father. Mark chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus has just been healing people and debating the Pharisees in front of the crowds, and now he wants to get away. So he goes to a house where it specifically says he did not want anyone to know he was there, yet he could not escape notice. Jesus 
frequently in scripture is attempting to get some rest. And he had a habit of setting aside time for rest. And he doesn't have a rigid rule as to how that applies. Sometimes he walks away when there seems to be still work to do. And he goes and he takes a rest with his father. Praying with him, I imagine, is a vacation for him to be with the father. But then there are other times when he doesn't take the rest. He sees, and in that moment, he's balancing the conflicting goods, and he decides, I must act. Even on the Sabbath, while it was his habit to keep the Sabbath, we have a few times where he doesn't because God's grace and power needs to be shown. He's moving to unforced rhythms of grace for himself and for others. Like a pendulum swinging back and forth, Jesus moves through his life here on the earth to a completely different rhythm. I guess my question for you has to be, what does your rhythm look like? To actually get you to think about that, it's a weird question. Let me put it another way to you. What does your calendar look like? As a youth minister, we used to take the beginning of the school year and we'd talk about what our calendar looked like. We'd get an Excel sheet and some boxes and we'd draw out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. If I were to ask you to do that and you were sitting here thinking about your normal Monday, not tomorrow that's a holiday, where would your time go as your work week? How much of it is spent in school, at work, getting ready, Maybe you're single and so when you come home, you know that there's no one else that has helped with the dishes or the laundry or anything else. So you just have to do it all yourself. And it doesn't matter if you're sick or you're feeling well, you're just going to come home and have to bear it. And so there's a set of time where you're just doing stuff to keep things going. If you're married and you have kids, there's this other block of time that happens. And it's an unexpected thing. I have a three-year-old, so today something happened and there's just a block of time that was not on my calendar previously. Do you think about that? Does it feel gracious? Does it feel like you're moving to a rhythm of ease and grace? Where do you refuel on that calendar? Where do you get rest? Where do you grow? You may have some time on Sunday mornings. You may even have some time on Wednesday nights. You may have some time by yourself during the week. Maybe you don't. Do you ever notice that things look like they're working just fine until you realize they aren't? You go to the doctor, you've been eating and doing things the same way for years only to find out that that thing that you've been doing that you thought was working fine in fact is the cause of major problems. It happens with our cars and our homes, foundation issues and other issues. We were doing it the same way and it looked like it was working fine because we didn't see what wasn't working. In our relationships, when things fall apart, almost always they're falling apart because of things that have been there for a very long time. If you're an athlete and you're doing something and you create muscle memory in the wrong way, it takes a heck of a long time to correct that later on. There are golfers in the room, of which I'm not, and they can tell you all about messing up their golf swing. If you're parenting and you're just trying to figure out how to get from day to day and you make choices and trying to respond to your children and it creates issues down the line, the truth is things often look like they're working right up until the time that they really don't. They weren't working all along and we just learn about it very late. Life with Christ is about 
a gracious rhythm despite the discord and irregularity of the problems of the world around us. And so if that's what it looks like, maybe if we aren't experiencing that, it's because the things we're doing in the week, while they may look like they're working, really aren't. Our rhythms aren't really serving who we want to be. Our habits aren't reinforcing who we're called to be. Good news. He says, where two or more are gathered, I am there also. We weren't called to run our race alone or to find our rhythm alone. Sometimes Jesus does get off by himself. And there's going to be times you do things by yourself. But quite frequently, he takes the disciples with him and he goes with them. And there's this community about it. It's about the community reinforcing the rhythms of grace amidst the chaos. It's our habits of being together, walking together, that keep us centered when we would otherwise fall out of rhythm. You know what happens when you take a pendulum and you swing it? You just start that thing going, a metronome? That thing will click on for a very long time, all happy to its own rhythm. If you set it on the foundation, something like this, something nice and hard, it will go absolutely bonkers, just continually keeping its rhythm. And you can put another one right beside it and set it on a completely different rhythm and it will stay on a completely different rhythm. But do you know what happens if you take those metronomes and you take them off that rock solid foundation of religiosity, of the I'm going to make sure that everything is just the way that I think it should be. I'm not going to be involved with anyone else. This is about what I think. It's my life. I'm an individual. I'm not in any way connected. If you take it off that foundation and you put it on one that's kind of tied to those around it, to those who are also trying to keep a reason, do you know what happens to the metronome in that case? This. That's who we are to one another. Much like running out with yourself, we often do it to music because we need more than just our own rhythm to keep going very far. And the truth is that together in this place, we jostle and move each other. Not mindless automatons just doing what the other person tells you, but as we wrestle together with the word and with the spirit, as we listen for Jesus' rhythm, we have a tendency to influence one another. Scientists have actually talked about the fact that when two people get together, their conversations form a rhythm. 
the way you act and the way you interact changes when you're around one another. Individuality is a great idea that came up in the 17th century. Before that, it was personhood. I want to submit to you today that being an individual isn't all it's cracked up to be. In actuality, who you are at your best is almost always with other people and in relationship with them. That's who you're called to be. And in this place today, can I be honest with you? If we're not experiencing the grace of Christ in our lives and in our rhythms, it may be that we need more time together. It may very well be that each other are the ones who help keep us going, that the only way we're going to do this well is if we do it together. It even may be that there is absolutely no way we can share and show the grace of Jesus Christ out there unless we have it first in here. It may very well be that you run alongside someone in this congregation that you don't agree with. And that in their wrestling with Christ, it may actually change your perspective. And that's okay. If you're both pointing to Jesus, then as you're wrestling together in community, you're going to continue to get closer. Remember, we're two or more gathered. There I am also. He's there providing that rhythm. And as you listen together, you learn more. Today in this place, the chaotic becomes the communal. The things in the world out there that would otherwise distract you and break you down as we are together get changed and transformed as we hear a different way of doing it, a different rhythm that challenges the brokenness of our everyday lives. May you today be people who influence one another to run the race with Jesus and to have a different kind of rhythm, one that provides grace even when it's difficult. For those in the room who do not have that, who have never had that, I challenge you today to come down here to the front and come talk to me about it. Come talk to any one of these ministers because there is something real about the fact that our lives are chaotic and there has to be something that helps us to get through. And I happen to know for a fact that God didn't create things to be this way. You have an opportunity today to change the rhythm of your race. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you today for this. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to be for one another, another voice sounding out your rhythm, offering grace for when we don't get it right, offering the opportunity to listen for what we're struggling with, offering more than just religious things about how something is our fault, but instead listening and caring and being concerned that today in this place, God, that people can find a place of grace because we're following you and we're balancing the good, the conflicting ideas, and we're trying our best. And it's that wiggle room, that ability to listen to one another and care about one another and listen for you, that gives us grace to go forward to fall down and get up. We pray that today, God, for those that don't have it, they will come find it. God, for everyone in this room, they've accepted you, but they are struggling with stuff in their life. They just need to come and pray. God, maybe they come find this altar and God, that you help us to understand where in our lives we need to have time where we refuel, time together with others, not because we're gonna get all the answers immediately, because it's gonna change the way we walk, the way we run. Pray that today in this place, God, that you would move in us, that grace would be here and a part of our rhythm and our pace. We ask this in your name, Christ Jesus. Amen.